Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, the host of The Remnant Podcast, uh, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, you can go to thedispatch.com to sign up for newsletters, uh, check out all our podcast wares, uh, to immunitize the eschaton, uh, do whatever you want over there, but just go. Do it now. Um, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at DoorDash, a Great company and a particularly useful tool in the era of coronavirus. Um, and I'm very excited to have a returning guest. I think this is his third um, appearance. And he's going to do a lot of the talking because, as you can tell, I'm still losing my voice. Uh, we have Ross Douthat from the New York Times and the film critic of National Review. Um, and the author of The Decadent Society, which I don't have in front of me. What was the subtitle? How we became the victims of our own success. There you go. So Ro hot, Ross. Welcome back. I, now we were talking in the the, the pregame show. Uh, um, you know, it's sort of like in the color of money in the practice room where all the real money is. Um, uh, you were saying uh, you you were giving me the vibe of a certain amount of. Uh, coronavirus uh dread i got the are you uh where, where are you on the zero to ten scale ten being hoard toilet paper and ride it out until so you're... i've been i mean i've been a nine for a while uh -huh. um but it's a it's all a relative scale right so i was you know i was an early adopter um of coronavirus panic uh -huh. um Without, it I've been a germaphobe for years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was I was born and raised a germaphobe. No, I'm actually not at all a germaphobe, um, or I, I have never been before. Now, this is the first time that I've ever used Purell um, uh -huh. more than once every six months or something. So it's a new experience. But no, I mean, I followed it. You know, I followed it in China and um, or from here, reading about China, and for a while, it just seemed like. It was pretty obvious that it was going to come to other countries and it was going to be bad um, and that we weren't prepared for it. So that's been my basic view all along. Um, and that obviously puts me more at the alarmist end of the spectrum. And I now that it has come here, I am in the sort of pro-draconian measures uh -huh. camp. Um, 
and in my own life this is i'm here visiting with you as part of you know the a leg of my book tour but i think like like a presidential campaign that hasn't won enough primaries my book tour will soon be suspended and i will retreat to our fortress of solitude in new haven with the toilet paper and the and we have i mean we we do have like shelves in the basement with uh, beans and rice and uh-huh. And all the fixins. Um, but the only thing you didn't I would... load those shelves because of Corona, though you were sort of had a prepper thing going before that. Yes or no? No. 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 This is this is all a new experience for me. I'm new to Purell. I'm new to prepping. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm asking people for advice. I'm I'm just learning. You know, I'm huh. learning what what it means to prep. No, this it's just this in particular. And you know, there's probably my wife is seven and a half months pregnant. I'm sure yeah, there's yeah. some sort of like you know defend the cubs yeah. um kind of kind of vibe um but genuinely generally i think that you know our government has been underprepared for this um i think trump made a really good call the the call he keeps bragging about yeah. shutting down travel from china and then wasted the next month and that we could have been out ahead of this and instead there's still a danger that we're going to end up where northern italy is which is you know tragic and Horrific. Now, if I'm the the qualifier is that um, in the last two days, just as I've been traveling a little bit, you know, airports are pretty empty. Uh, I was in Grand Central Station under the constellations yesterday morning. It was the emptiest I've ever seen it. And schools are closing, colleges are closing up and down the Eastern Seaboard. And I'm, I think we have a a real outbreak in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but I'm sort of hopeful that even these sort of that America is a big enough country and we're sort of spread out enough that just the sort of voluntary measures rolling into place um, that, that we can still avoid where where northern Italy has ended up. So that's my that's the mild optimism that I'm that I'm feeling today um, as to balance out my months of, you know, sort of reading reading weird Twitter users posting updates from Wuhan and thinking this is this is coming for us. Yeah. And it has, right? So I think I remember and I think you're right, like the 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 beginning of the stand, the Stephen King thing yes. about the spread of the virus thing. Yes. I remember you tweeting about it years ago about how it stuck in your head and it is part of the problem, right? I mean it's like I am like Who's that guy, the Israeli psychologist, thinking fast, thinking slow? Oh, Daniel Kahneman? Yeah, where he, in that book- I'm where, pronouncing it right. Yeah. Uh, close enough for podcast yeah. work. Um, <laughs> he runs through these experiments where are these these studies where like judges can be tricked into all sorts of motivated reasoning if they're hungry or if you say a number of, say a bunch of numbers, then they'll change how their brains work and all that kind of stuff. Like my wife has now watched Contagion twice since the Corona thing yep. started. And I hadn't watched it, but she's been out of town, so I I went and watched it, and it is amazing. Like I'm fully aware that it is happening, that it even though I completely know that the, the virus in the movie is not the coronavirus, yeah, it just rewires your paranoid centers in a certain way. And the more you know that apocalyptic literature kind of stuff, even if you're conscious of it, it's kind of hard to keep your brain from going there when you just see like the beginning of a zombie virus movie playing out on Twitter, right? Yeah, I mean, my assumption had been that, uh, you know, I mean, the stand is obviously not supposed to be realistic. Contagion is supposed to be realistic, and it its flu or its virus is much more 
much more deadly than the right. coronavirus. It's like one out of every five, I think, yeah. in in that movie. Um, but I, I remember I remember reading World War Z, uh-huh. you know, the, oh, the yeah. novel about the zombie apocalypse, and I found it, you know, entertaining, but totally unconvincing because a chunk of the book is devoted to the idea that this is going to start happening and the U.S. response is going to be incredibly slow. Right. And even though there are literally zombies walking the earth, nobody's going to do anything about it. I think he has a sort of, you know, making fun of George W. Bush subplot, if I'm remembering it correctly. Um, and to be honest, watch watching the Trump White House response to the coronavirus, I find the World War Z story... A little more persuasive. Like, I think the rewiring, I, I agree with you. There's a moment when your brain gets rewired and you're suddenly seeing pandemic everywhere. But I think it's hard for people to have that rewiring happen. Um, I think it's, I think there's a really strong human bias towards it, towards the idea that if something is happening in slow motion, it's not really dangerous. Yeah. And yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, that's been the deal with this. It's like, well, you only have four cases here. You only have eight cases here. And people aren't conditioned to think in terms of exponential growth. And again, God willing, we won't get exponential growth right now. The South Koreans had it briefly, and they seem to, they've, they haven't just bent the curve, they've flipped the curve. Right. Um, and so if they can do it, we can do it too. But you actually have to do it. You're not, you can't just sort of assume that somebody else will, st- some, something will intervene to stop the exponential curve from, from happening. Um, so we just the, recorded. The, the stand though, man. Have you read that? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I read it for the first time. I remember I was like 12 years old in Maine. We would go to Maine in the summer and I'd always read Stephen King books in Maine. Because uh-huh. Why not? And I remember reading it sitting on a beach and you just look around at all the, you know, half-naked bodies of, you know, pasty New Englanders yeah. around you, and you see nothing but, you know, disease vectors <laughs> as far as the eye can see. So maybe I had a little paranoia somewhere deep in my childhood psyche. Well, so like, in the spirit of sort of the Obama administration, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. I am desperately trying to get a new national consensus. I, I want I want handshakes to come back. I think that's a good thing tied to our medieval past or the Shakers or wherever it is we got it from. Um, not the Shakers, the Puritans. Um, but uh, I want electric hand blowers in bathrooms. Oh, yeah, yeah. Torn, I know this is a cause of yours. Yeah. Torn down yep. like false idols amongst the early Protestants. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, iconoclasm of the bathroom. That's right. Um, and, and even as a Catholic, I can go. This is one form of iconoclasm <laughs> I can I can go along with. Um, or if you want to call it, you know, uh, hygienic luditism, we can do it that way. We don't have to drag it into a, a denominational war. Um, but it, you're a good antidote. I just recorded a podcast with David Bonson, and he was pretty bullish that this is going to work out just fine. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, mm-hmm. and the point I made to him was that sort of the reverse of your point is that if we end up getting our act together finally on the testing stuff um, and we start doing South Korea levels of testing. Oh, yeah. Our numbers. Our numbers are going to skyrocket, yep. right? Because there are a whole bunch of people who are walking around carriers right now and it's going to seem. Could be, could be you and me. Totally could be. Um, I actually had uh, drinks last night with a good friend of mine who belongs to the church in. Oh, yeah. In Georgetown. He didn't go, but. A uh, friend of his wife's did, and then the f- and then his wife and the friend had lunch together, and they're all freaking out about it. And you start doing these games. Oh, I assume you know? that you must have 
con- you must have had contact with at least some people who went to CPAC, right? Maybe not, not. Maybe not anymore. <laughs> maybe not. But wasn't, but, I mean, but, speaking of like sci-fi apocalyptic literature, wasn't that a little too on the nose? It was a little. <laughs> yes. I mean. Yes. Um, um, yeah. I it, mean, I, I think, I think this, you know, it may, it may work out okay. And, you know, one of the themes of um, my book, which we're going to turn to in a moment, turn to in a minute. But one of the one of the arguments in the book is that, in fact, you know, that Western societies are decadent, but they have a lot of resilience in their Mm -hmm. decadence. Right. So that, you know, people you can have a sort of test of the system that exposes all kinds of weaknesses and, you know, that bureaucratic gridlock involved in the, you know, even long before you get to Trump, like the stuff with the FDA and the CDC and so on, just, you know, it's decadence, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But the society is rich and prosperous and old and stable and probably it's not going to fall apart into, you know, a war between good and evil with good in Colorado and evil in Nevada, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a la la the end of of the stand. So, and and the truth is that I will be really happy if in six months we look around and say, yeah, you know, 700 people died of the coronavirus before we got everything under control. And um, and once we did, Trump and others said, well, we overreacted. If, if we, you know, if we look back and people say we overreacted, that means we won. Mm-hmm. So that's good. I'm I'm happy to take the fall for overreaction if we have less than a thousand people die in the U.S. from this. Um, but let's get the overreaction now. <laughs> let's have it. Let's overreact. <laughs> um, all right. So since you since you brutally brought it up and uh, such man, I'm on book tour. You gotta uh, you gotta I, you gotta go in. You gotta see an opening. Although I gotta tell you, you are you're no Tevi Troy. Like Tevi Troy, <laughs> I had him on a couple weeks ago. You know, my oldest friend in Washington. I replaced him at AEI yeah. 25 years ago, and uh, uh, you were Lou Gehrig to his Wally Pip. No, I That's don't know. exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, I don't think he made it. He went more than three sentences without saying, as, as I, I wrote in my book, as it says in my book, yep. as I wrote in my book, and all that kind of stuff. So. Um, but that's what you got to do. I mean, this is one of my questions in doing the rounds is to what extent, you know, to what extent does podcasting sell books and to what extent does it substitute, right? For, well, for, for, I mean, I, for a book. I have anecdotal data that this podcast moves books. Okay. Well, oh. listen, listeners, prove Jonah right. Right now, <laughs> www.amazon.com. Um, um, but yeah, you ha- I, I do feel like there's... You know, there's sort of a pressure to figure out how, you know, how you how you get the listener to focus on the idea of clicking on the link and buying the book. And so I, I sympathize with Tevi, even if I don't have his oh, look, I mean, I, monomaniacal I, devotion. I've done the book tour thing, too. It's 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 and it's more podcast like like that's the big change. For yeah. Me, even from the last book tour is there's so many podcasts and they're so central yeah. to it now. I feel like in a way that did you record the book yourself? I did first yeah. time. Yeah, it's a it's a bear. Ain't it's it? a bear, but I I mean I really I really was glad to. Do oh, I am. I'll, I'll never. How many have you done? All of yours? Or? Not my first, and I still I I get complaints every couple of weeks from somebody saying you know the voice the person who read liberal fascism sucks, <laughs> and um, no offense to whoever read it, you know. Yep. Um, but I really 
it's hard. It's much harder than people realize to oh, yes. read the whole book. Absolutely. And, and, the multi-day process, you know, you're there with warm beverages. Right. And if you have a good editor, they're stopping you and telling you to redo sentences and so on. And you have to pause to figure out pronunciations. So and, that's what I had for my for my very underrated Tyranny Clichés book. But then... Uh, <laughs> the deep cuts. Uh, the For Suicide of the West, they sent down from New York a audiobook director, something I did not know existed until she showed up. And so there was the engineer and the audiobook director for four days, five days, because it was a long book. Um, And she was like, often she'd be like, okay, what's your motivation here? (laughs) (laughs) And she was great. I mean, she actually helped me with the reading, but it was just, it was intense. Anyway. uh, That's, did you ever find... Uh, you know, did you ever find yourself like doing accents? Well, because when you're reading other, I, you know, you, they're in in the decadent society yeah. available at Amazon by now. You know, there are block quotes, right? Right. There are quotes yeah, 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 yeah. Various people. Some of them are people I have met or know. Yeah. So I yeah. know what their voice is. Like I quote Peter Thiel at one point. Peter Thiel has a very distinctive vocal pattern. And I was both almost lifelike. And I was, yeah, I was <laughs> very. I was sort of worried that I was going to be, you know, not that he would listen to to the audiobook per se, although he wrote a very kind review of the book, but that you know that he that I might lapse into some sort of bad Peter Thiel imitation. Yeah. But you also want to make the quote sound different from That's your right. own voice. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and where I really struggled is my French pronunciation is affreux. <laughs> Merveilleux. It is. I, I'm not. Parfait. Uh, <laughs> How much French is there in the suicide? La Suisse. There's some French West. revolutionaries. Ah, and, you know, some of that kind of absolutely. Big, big chunks of Robespierre. Oh. Uh, not Robespierre. Oh. Uh, Rousseau. Rousseau. You know. And uh, um, please stop. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had high school French. I have a terrible, terrible French. Um, so I'm. We. I don't judge. <laughs> um, once I once I went, I took my uh, then girlfriend, now wife, to Montreal, and I, you know, that you go to some ticket window to they ask you how many tickets do you want, like combien de billets, yeah, um, and I answered two, which is literally, you know, de, right? right? It's the easiest French word in the world, and my accent was so bad. That they immediately were like, "All right, Mister. All right, sir. Here you go. <laughs> Switched." And she, yeah, she's never let me forget that. See, my, this is my why duh is insufficiently French. I really like German, in part because you can't screw up the accent for some reason, and <laughs> maybe it's because like watching World War II movies, right? But like, you know, you just basically say it the way it looks, yeah. or say it like you're choking on a chicken bone. Sometimes, you know, for some of the words, but. Um, like French accents are tough. Anyway, I'm not trying to avoid talking about your book. Let's start um, with how you define decadent, right? Because you just you jumped jumped right into it, calling us decadent as if yes. everyone agrees that we're decadent. What do you mean by decadence? How are we decadent? Um, and uh, why is it mostly a bad thing, but not entirely? So. The definition of decadence I'm using is stolen from Jacques Barzun. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. All French listeners have now 
have now hurled the podcast across the room. Uh, Jacques Barzun, who was a tremendous cultural historian at uh, Columbia University for a long time, and he wrote a book called From Dawn to Decadence, which mm-hmm. is probably better than mine, but also longer. So, you know, you can start with mine and then go deep if you if you really want with him. Uh, but his book came out about 20 years ago, and he argued basically that you can talk about decadence not as what he called a slur, but as a technical label mm-hmm. um, to refer to a society that uh, has reached a point in its development where it lacks clear lines of advance, it falls into repetition, um, it still has energy. People, you know, are sort of aware that they're stuck and want to get out of it, but don't know how. And its institutions function painfully, is his phrase, which I think is should be familiar to anyone who's observed Washington D.C. Um, and I think he says something like, you know, when a con- when a culture accepts sort of absurdity as normal, um, it's decadent, basically. So that's his definition, and then I try and refine it further into a not entirely pithy, but somewhat pithy sentence, which is that decadence refers to stagnation, drift, repetition, and decay at a high level of economic and technological development. Mm -hmm. So you can't be decadent if you are, you know, a hunter-gatherer society can't be decadent, right? You have to achieve a certain level of civilizational success to be decadent. But And decadence also doesn't just mean anything bad that I dislike about a given moment, right? So it's just because there are, you know, too many orgies or something doesn't mean a society is necessarily decadent. It mm-hmm. might be wicked and perverse, um, but if it has energy and dynamism and growth, if the orgies are part of some cultural renaissance where, you know, Michelangelo is painting the ceiling, then, you know, as a Catholic, I'm against the orgies. Right. But that society isn't But decadent. like a Dionysian cult. Would a Dionysian like... cult in its first iteration isn't decadent. If they're just going through the motions at a certain point as, you know, like, like poly, Bay Area polyamory uh-huh. is more decadent than, you know, the nightclubs of 70s New York. Right. Because it's like, well, we're making a lot of rules so that we can figure out how we can have sex with each other. That's more decadent than the totally D- Dionysian freewheeling um, uh, S- culture. So, so that's that's the definition. Sort of like the bear joke, which I'm not going to repeat, but it's... Uh, the decadent Dionysian orgy cult is where people are, they're really not there for the Dionysian part anymore, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) This isn't about the Dionysianism, is it? (laughs) Um, So that's, so that's the basic, that's the basic idea. And then the thesis of the book is that this describes America, the West, the developed world, including the Pacific Rim, um, from about the moon landing to the present day, with okay. decadence as sort of decadence slowly advancing across that fifty-year period. Before you put your Frederick Jackson Turner hat on, yes. Okay, I just, I've got it's a cowboy hat with a feather. I've conceptually, and in, in here I thought you were a pimp, but because um, <laughs> um, it is, a, it's a striking hat. I mean, it's just a shame this is an audio product because it's really amazing. Um, uh, in my book, I have this whole thing about corruption, right? And for me, corruption is also decay, right? But it's a reversion back to nature. It's like entropy, um, uh, like the second law of thermodynamics kind of thing. Um, your decadence or your decay isn't 
necessarily synonymous with decline, right? It's like a holding pattern more than anything else. And it's not the kind of decay like the rise and fall of Rome decay, or is it? Is it an intermediary stage? I think it's an stage? intermediary stage. So uh-huh. I think the I think there's a certain overlap between the arguments in our two books, which is why listeners should buy yours. Although I can't imagine now out in paperback. Haven't already now out in paperback. Um, but I think I think my argument is basically that the period that you would call decay, the sort of reversion to entropy, can in the right situation go on a very long time. And that there is a, a sort of a way in which decadence can be sustainable over multiple generations, even multiple centuries in certain cases, if you don't have either internal or external forces that can sort of bring the whole system mm-hmm. to its knees. Um, and so, you know, in the case of Rome, right, the decay of Rome, you know, it does end up bringing down the Roman Empire, sure. but it takes either 400 years or if you you know, fold in Byzantium 1,400 years to mm-hmm. get to a point where it actually falls. And similarly, if you think of the Ottoman Empire in its sick man of Europe phase or the Chinese Empire, you know, from 1700 to 1900, these are long periods of time right. where cultures are or political institutions are, in my definition, decadent. And during that time, they are they are decaying. It's not that there isn't decay, but it is a it's a slower process or can be a slower process, I think, than people sometimes suspect. And there isn't some iron law that once you become decadent, the barbarians will show up and put things to the torch. Sure. Sometimes the barbarians are a long way off. Sometimes there aren't enough of them anymore. Sometimes the whole world is getting decadent. And so even your enemies are participating in the same sort of stasis, stagnation and repetition which is my suspicion about what's happening globally now. Okay, so I want to come back to that because I have, I have thoughts. I have notes. I bet you do. Um, but um, let's, let's give you an excuse to wear that Frederick Jackson Turner hat. Yeah. Um, the frontier. You, uh, yeah, for the for listeners who don't know, Frederick Jackson Turner is a famous historian who said the closing of the frontier was this major psychological development and our watershed in American history. Um, and you have a similar argument about the disappointment of the post-moon landing era. So why don't you walk us through that? Right. So Turner, right. Turner's thesis is that American life was oriented towards the frontier and the frontier being closed is therefore a big sort of psychological break in the cultural history. Of Oriented towards the frontier, even for people who had no intention of moving there, yes. who did not live there, Boston Brahmins and all those people. They are shaped, right, their view of who they are and what America is and, you know, what their kids can do and so on um, is all shaped by this idea. And I argue that that one, that that's not unique to the United States of America, that the whole experience of the West uh, it's not the American West, but the West broadly defined, the West as, you know, defined in mm-hmm. in your own book, is shaped by the idea of exploration, the idea that there are worlds beyond our shores that we can go explore, discover, settle, sometimes conquer. Um, and, you know, obviously this is very morally ambiguous because, you know, you end up conquering people and exterminating people and doing terrible things as Western empires often did. Um, and Eastern empires. And Eastern empires. Empire. Right. Well, and all, right. No, I mean, you can extend this, and I do briefly, beyond just the West to say any dynamic empire is likely right. to, you know, 
commit some crimes in the course of its expansion. But the West is, you know, the the dominant civilization of the modern age, and it succeeds in spreading its institutions and ideas and peoples all around the globe. And it ends up not just, you know, going exploring in South America or Africa, but, you know, all the way to totally uninhabited spaces. So by the end, you know, by the end of the Victorian era, it's all about races to the poles and climbing Mount Everest and basically any space in the world that hasn't been explored, we wanted to explore it. And then at a certain point, you know, the map was filled in and we started to run out of places to explore. There are still some trenches at the bottom of the sea that we haven't fully, fully gotten to. Um, but the world is mapped, the world is explored. And at that moment, there seemed to open up what John F. Kennedy, uh, one of your and I's least favorite presidents in many ways, but for the purposes of this book, I'm for him, right, mm -hmm. called The New Frontier. Right. And the idea that having filled the earth, having obeyed the admonition that's Genesis, that starts the whole, starts the whole Judeo-Christian story in certain ways, now there was, a lot, there was a much bigger world. There was a whole galaxy out there. And we were going to start with the moon and go from the moon to Mars and beyond. And this was one of the points I make in the book is that, you know, we're sort of accustomed to the idea that space exploration is you know, a sort of distant science fiction fantasy. But if you go back and look at the, you know, not just sci-fi writers, but sort of expert predictions that were made in the 60s, there was just this assumption that, well, of course, there would be a moon base, right. there would be lunar colonies, uh, there would be more space stations, people would live on the space stations, there would be space elevators going up and down. And Is your then... contention we don't have moon bases? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean Alex Jones. It is that's yeah, that's the ultimate. I haven't been on the Alex Alex Jones Alex Jones Alex Jones show. I need to tailor my pitch for him. But for you, I'm going to say there are no moons. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. And we didn't, you know, we didn't get to Jupiter by the time that they were supposed to in the, you know, 2001 a space odyssey. And the whole Star Trek timeline sure. looks ridiculous. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah. Right, where we were going to have, you know, genetically engineered supermen by the 1990s. Right. And we would be, you know, warping our way around the galaxy by the late 21st century. Um like you were in college when the eugenic wars were supposed to be going. Well, exactly, and we're now almost to Zephyr, Zephyrim Cochran, right? Yeah, yeah. Is the guy who invents the, the warp, warp drive. drive. Yeah. Yep, and um, so he's supposed to be around the corner, and so none of that has obviously happened. We're still, you know, trying to do things in space, and there's impressive technical breakthroughs in rocketry and so on, but everything is happening a lot more slowly, and the frontiers of space are just not a frontier that actually has any effect on mm. how people think about the world. And so this is unprovable, but part of my argument in the book is that the the sort of measurable aspects of decadence, you know, the economic deceleration since the 70s, the declining birth rate, um, the, you know, slowing of technological progress outside the digital world, the total sclerosis of our political institutions, all of that does in part reflect this sort of realization that we didn't have a frontier anymore. We didn't have anywhere else to go. We'd filled the earth and we were sort of stuck here. And that had we been able to leap to Mars and colonize it, a lot of, you know, trends here on earth might look very different, which is, you know, very speculative. And you don't have to buy that speculation to buy the you know, mm -hmm. the underlying analysis of the book 
Um, but that's where my story sort of starts and ends in the it's, book. So I have an annoying question, and I want to I want to stipulate that it's annoying. Yes. Um, I'm inclined to agree with you that civilizations need sort of civilizational goals, right? That you sort of strive to the the carrot just beyond the reach of the donkey's nose that causes you to move yep. forward, right? Um, but is there any empirical evidence that that's true? I mean, I, I'm asking this as a sincere, annoying question. Like, is there some... I'm, the data people figure out ways to find data for all sorts of crazy crap, yep. right? Is there, like... Like, you can make the case that, you know... China's had a little bit of that. I mean, they tried it with the Great Leap Forward. That didn't work. But, like, you know, there is, the rise of nationalism in China is kind of tied in with their aspirational claim to restore, to make China great again, yep. right? You know? Um, but do you know of data that sort of, that, like... Data? Yeah, no, I'm, I mean, I'm just curious. I mean, you've been poking around in this stuff. Like, yeah. people, people stop doing drugs or stop whatever because they you know, care about the greater glory of their civilization and they're committing themselves to a cause kind of thing. Anything I mean, like there's that. lots of, so there's lots of data in the personal realm, right? Where, you know, men are more likely to get their act together, True. right? And work for the future when, even if they just get their girlfriend pregnant, it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be, you know, you don't have to be married. Like the effects of sort of things in your life that embed you in a larger drama, I think that's pretty clear. I think it's harder to measure in the case of it's hard to figure out exactly, you know, how do you how do you devise a sort of, you know, national greatness index? Um, but I mean, I think, you know, in one of one of the sort of clearer statistical elements of what I'm calling decadence is demographic decline. Mm -hmm. Right. It's the fact that since the 70s to I think to the surprise of some demographers, Fertility rates in every rich country, with one exception that I'll get to in a minute to try and mm -hmm. answer your answer your reasonable question, fertility rates have settled below replacement mm -hmm. and and well below replacement in some cases. And the expectation was once upon a time that you know people would have fewer kids once infant mortality was reduced and agrarian lifestyles were left behind and uh, women were you know empowered to work outside the home, but people would have you know, about as many kids as they said they wanted, which would be 2 to 2.5, and society would continue to replace itself. And instead, no, it's, you know, birth rates are down to 1.7, 1.6, 1.5. In South Korea, they're at 1. So, you know, you can sort of tra trace yeah. a line forward. So that, you know, that has all kinds of consequences for economics and politics. It feeds into the feedback loops of decadence. Um, but then there's an exception. Right. There is a rich country that doesn't just have above replacement fertility. It has fertility rates above three. And that exception is the state of Israel. And Israel is the really the only wealthy country in the world that exists in the kind of cultural political embattlement that most countries existed in for most of human history um, with the added aspect that you know, it's a country founded as a kind of literal ark for a people that was almost exterminated just before the country was founded. Um, and what's striking in Israel, too, is that it's not just um, the religious who have higher birth rates, it's secular Israelis as well. Uh, and to me, that is at least one data point f 
in to sort of provide statistical evidence, not necessarily that you need a frontier per se, but that people need to be, in order to avoid decadence, people need to be embedded in a story of some kind. And it doesn't have to be, you know, a myth of national greatness per se. It can be, you know, at the personal level, a family story. It can be, I think, the most common thing is a religious story, which is why religious populations have higher birth rates even under decadence than secular ones do. But the Israeli story is very clear. The purpose of Israel is very clear in a way that the purpose of, um, you know, a lot of Western countries is not. And the fact that they have sort of avoided the decadence of demographic decline in this way, I think it's at least suggestive that, yes, that some, it, it's, you don't necessarily need a Western frontier to go to, but you need to believe that you are part of a narrative larger than yourself. And, you know, at whatever level that narrative is happening, that your choices have implications that extend beyond your own sort of personal pleasures in everyday everyday life. Yeah, I can't remember if it's in the book because I've just been diving in and out of it, but um, did you um did you ever look at Sebastian Younger's book Tribe? I did, but briefly. So yeah, you know, so it's um but yeah, he has a version of Yeah, well he makes this point about how PTSD for returning soldiers in America is like I don't want to these are all just off the top of my head generalizations, so it's not the exact data, but like, like 10 times worse than what you get in Israel because when when they reintegrate when they come home from the front in America they are coming into the you know Heronius Bosch hellscape that Sora Bamari thinks America is of atomized individuals and they don't drag queen story hour drag queen story hour and you know like um like Robin Williams in that Moscow on the Hudson movie, freaking out over the choices that they have at the coffee aisle and the supermarket. And there's not the kind of social cohesion that immerses them in both empathy and sympathy and also commiseration because lots of people served in the military and in, in Israel. And in Israel, people come home from the front, they're thanked for their sense of mission. They feel like they're part of something. Yep. And I've heard some people push back on that stuff, but at the... 30,000 foot level, it seems like a really important fact in a way. And it kind of buttresses, buttresses what you're talking about a bit. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a clear... So on the one hand, the American military is itself sort of an exception to decadence, which you can see both in its own sort of internal performance and in the way American society thinks about it. It's the only trusted right. public institution because people are clear on what its purpose is. And, you know, apart from some people in Berkeley... There's, you know, there's a strong consensus. Republicans and Democrats both think the military is good and, you know, many things it does are good and, you know, the sacrifice of our troops is good and so on. Um, so in that sense, right, it's an exception, but then it's, it's very exceptionalism. I think it totally makes sense that right. then reentry into a society whose other institutions are decadent, um, would be challenging. Right, right. I think that's right. Um, so do you see um, nationalism as the American-style nationalism that, I shouldn't say American-style, the, the nationalism being promulgated by many friends of ours 
some former friends. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know about your personal relationships, but you know what I'm talking about. I don't have any personal relationships. Um, it's, made, it's made the Trump era a lot easier. For me. <laughs> um, I'm telling you, like, being a misanthrope and a germaphobe, I am, like, prepared. And having an Alaskan wife. Exactly. I mean, you you are set. Uh, totally. Totally. And, and, like, we can... um. If you can get yourself to Alaska, we will got you, you covered. Will you protect me? Yes, yes. Okay. You know that's that is the state. I mean, or the 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 passage that Justin Cronin vampire novel, yeah. right? Like novels where you have to cross a you know ravaged North American landscape to achieve sanctuary. I've always been a big fan of. Yeah. So, you know, up, an upside of the coronavirus is maybe I will get to live that out, trying to get to the Goldberg Gavora. Yeah, I mean, it's um, possible that because a couple of my. Members of my wife's family have um, planes. Oh, so so, but like, but you have to get those little they, Piper Cub planes. Fly me, right? Yeah, yeah. No I need, jets. I need to get at least to like Alberta. Yeah, so you know, something. Like okay, that. I can. I can um, do that. So, uh, where were we going with this? Um, uh, nationalism. Nationalism is nationalism an autoimmune response to decay, mm-hmm. or is it a manifestation of decay? I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. I think so. I with Donald Trump himself um, in the book, I argue that he is both the Trump phenomenon is both an embodiment of decadence and a rebellion against it at the same time. Right. So that Trump is in certain ways, certain obvious ways, a very decadent figure. But at the same time, he's channeling people's discontents with the status quo. Right. And um, the idea of make America great again does sort of harken back to the new frontier and the moon landing and mm-hmm. the prosperity of the 60s that many of Trump's voters experienced firsthand. If you look at it in just the right light. In just the right <laughs> light. Well, I mean, you know, if you look at Trump's last State of the Union, right, which yeah. I think was, you know, whatever you think of the substance, the most effective speech in certain ways of uh-huh. his presidency, which he immediately, like, you know, shoveled donkey manure on the next day. Um it was basically a statement of, you know, a we beat decadence statement, uh-huh. right? If you'd subbed in decadence at various points in that speech, you know, basically he was saying, we've been stagnant and now I've let us out of it. You right. Know, we were losing wars and now we're winning them, all of this stuff. And I think that's, again, I think it's a, I don't think he has actually conquered decadence, but I think the imp- the sense of sort of futility in our politics um, is something that he has played upon pretty effectively. Um, And in that sense, yeah, so in that sense, it's sort of, it's more an autoimmune response. Um, But in terms of, you know, the actual political choices that populist and nationalist politicians tend to make, they tend to, I think, take you deeper into just a sort of a a slightly different, a novel form of stalemate, um, where you shift from a kind of stalemate between right and left, which is what's defined our politics, you know, arguably since the 1980s, to a stalemate between um, sort of the establishment and the peripheries, where the establishment is seen as discredited and can't govern, and the peripheries have legitimate complaints, but then when their avatars take power, they can't actually govern, and so the cycle continues. Or they can't find leaders, so they just become sort of headless protest movements like the Gilets jaunes Mm -hmm. in France, the Gilets jaunes uh, in in La France, Uh La Belle France. Okay, see, it's terrible. I can't. Anyway, Um, so that's, yeah, so I'm, I mean, but that also makes me, as someone who, you know, would like to someday leave decadence behind, 
I I can't be totally opposed to either socialism, or either sorry, either populism <laughs> on the right. Look at that Freudian slip, or socialism on the left. I in the sense that, like you're, you know, I sympathize with the frustrations that produce those kind of those kind of movements and those kind of leaders and. And and there does seem like something depressing about the idea that we're stuck with a choice between the rebellions against decadence manifested by Trump and Bernie Sanders, um, which I don't really want to run the country, and the sustainable decadence embodied by a figure like Joe Biden. Mm. Like Joe Biden is the sustainable decadence candidate for president. He's, he's returned to normalcy. He's retur- returned to normalcy. He's like Obama, but without... It's Obamaism without the utopianism of 2008. Right. It's just like, you know, I, I, you know, I've been in Washington a long time. I've made a lot of deals. You know, Trump's an embarrassment. We're just going to sort of keep going as we go. And I think, you know, in an age of coronavirus um, and an economy that may stumble, I think that's probably a winning message. And as someone who's kind of exhausted by the Trump era, you know, I'm not going to say that I, <laughs> I won't kind of... I won't feel a little bit of relief at having, you know, at having at having a certain normalcy. But it's the normalcy of decadence. Joe Biden, there's no political realignment coming from Joe Biden. There's no new governing majority. Um, and I guess my question, without taxing your voice too much, if I could turn it back on you, right? So I, I sort of hope for something out of populism. Mm-hmm. I hope for some kind of realignment that makes America governable again. And... Since you're more of a scourge of populism than I am, what's what's your path? Um, I mean, maybe there isn't a path. Maybe it's maybe you know gridlock and stasis are the best we can hope for. But what's what's your preferred path to a country where presidents can actually, where Congress does its job and passes legislation yeah. and presidents aren't just negotiating policy with the courts. And yeah, I mean, this is basically the system we have now. Every president gets to pass one mediocre piece of legislation and the rest of it is a bureaucratic fight. Yeah. So I'll, uh, I would, I'll go a weird route and say, I have profound disagreements with Patrick Deneen, but one of the things I appreciate about his book and his argument is that it is not strictly speaking reactionary and that he just wants to sort of go backwards in time. Yep. And one of the places where I agree with him a lot is on, on localism. Mm-hmm. I would like to see a, a populism of localism, right? Which I think in some ways you have, to, you can only really get, and I think you would, and I know you would agree with this to some extent, with some sort of true religious reawakening yep. where, you know, it's, it's religious movements have a much better chance of actually helping people close to the ground where they live, where they have names and all that kind of stuff. And I really believe that if you could reorient the power structure in the country where the establishment that pissed people off was the local establishment and therefore they had they felt like they had some power to deal with it mm-hmm. um would have incredible restorative powers for this country but that means we would have to have a certain amount of tolerance for communities to live wrong you know in both the left wing sense or the right wing sense yeah. you know 
I don't think we can have Jim Crow. I don't think you can like that's we fought right. a civil war. We amended the Constitution, so you can't you can't like whenever I talk about states' rights to or federalism to college kids, they always well, are you saying slavery is okay? I was like, no, I am not saying slavery is okay. But beyond like that kind of stuff, and it's funny, I just had um, Stephanie Slade from Reason on, who's like a classical liberal libertarian, yep. and I like her a lot, and not just because I like fast talking women, but uh, <laughs> she. Uh, she hard booze and fast talking <laughs> libertarian women. Um, she makes the um, um, the same. She does the same thing that Nick Gillespie and a lot of libertarians do. Is that they talk about how they're in favor of, as as Nick would put it, a utopia of utopias where like lots of different kinds of communities can thrive, right? And then when you actually ask them what can the local communities forbid individual members of doing. And it's all this homina, 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 homina. You don't like, like the all of a sudden individual rights are just as powerful for the, you know, the local city ordinance as they are for the federal government. And I'm just not there philosophically. Yeah. I think you have to have the right to exit. But other than that, you let, let communities be weird, you know? And that means if, as long as you were allowed to move out of town. And I think, anyway, if you did that, all the problems that we have of following politics, like it's a form of entertainment, following politics as if there is, we're being ruled by an abstract other, kind of go away because you're actually looking close to home. And when you're looking close to home, the establishment is Sarah and Ted and Phil and Alice and these people whose names you know and people you can fire, right? It's not the Jews or the globalists or, you know, uh, the stonecutters, um, so that would be really part of really nice pronunciation of globalists. You like globalists? Um, it's in it's in my audio reading of Suicide of the West too. Um, <laughs> so on the religious part, so you knew I was going to go here, mm -hmm. um, but before we do that, let's talk about DoorDash. So as some listeners might know, if they've been reading my Twitter feed or my uh, newsletter closely, uh, I've been alone with four quadrupeds for quite a while now in the uh, Goldberg estate. And um, one of the things that I've been relying on, because I don't want to, I'm always terrified about um, messing up the house for when my wife comes back, because she has this reasonable expectation that everything should be clean when she comes back. And if I've cleaned the place or if the place is clean, I basically, I go through it like it's a crime scene and I don't want to get my prints on anything. Um, and so one of the ways I managed to do that is by ordering from DoorDash because that way I don't make any mess with the kitchen. I don't make any mess with the pots. I just I eat over the sink and um, sort of like a, you know, like Dexter, a serial killer with I just cover myself in plastic and I make no mess. And uh, and DoorDash is a great way to, to do that kind of thing. There are other reasons to go order from DoorDash. DoorDash brings you all of America flavors to your door. Ordering is easy. Open the DoorDash app. Choose what you want to eat, and your food will be delivered to you wherever you are. Not only is your favorite pizza joint already on DoorDash, but there are over 310,000 restaurant partners in 4,000 cities, so you might find a new favorite too. With door-to-door -door delivery in all 50 U.S. states, Puerto Rico, Canada, and Australia, you can order from your local go-tos or choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, and the Cheesecake Factory. With DoorDash, you never have to worry about your next meal. 
So, right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code REMNANT, not DINGO, for reasons that are beyond mystifying to me. It's REMNANT for DoorDash. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter promo code REMNANT. Don't forget, the code's REMNANT for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. We thank DoorDash for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant, which is your promo code. Um, uh, this whole aspirational civilizational thing, right? Um, where when societies feel that they're progressing towards something, they have more confidence, they have better fertility rates and all these kinds of things. I'm going to use a shorthand here, um, but wouldn't bringing back the papal armies do this to a certain extent? If we could just have papal ninjas and yep. papal armies, right? If we could, if if the Catholic Church was much more robust, right? First of all, you'd have a sort of an arms race of other denominations. One, you know, um, if it went back to its role as a major driver of the global order in a serious way, um, could that work as the, um, um, as one of these civilizational things? And I'm, I'm asking this for a couple of reasons. One, because as you know, I'm obsessed with papal ninjas. And two, because you keep promising that you'll talk about it and you never do. So, <laughs> Oh, in an actual... <clears throat> so, I mean, I, you know, obviously there's no problem that a papal ninja can't, can't solve. Um, but... I mean, really what you need are, I mean, in a sense, they were papal ninjas, right? The uh-huh. Jesuits sure. right, are, were the papal ninjas of the 16th and 17th. The Knights of Malta, right? right. I don't know. And that, I think if you're thinking about what, you know, what Catholicism needs in the United States right now, what it needs above all is a dynamic missionary order, which could be the Jesuits. I mean, the uh-huh. Jesuits are still there. Uh, it could be, you know, the Dominicans who, you know, the Dominicans in the northeastern U.S. have, you know, booming vocations. There's there's lots, or it could be a new order founded by somebody. But basically, the Catholic Church in the U.S. is itself decadent in the terms yeah. I describe. It's a incredibly successful entity that became the most important church in the U.S. in spite of Protestant suspicion and occasional persecution. But now, most everywhere outside the Southwest, it's too big for its it it has more bloat than it has fervor. Mm-hmm. It's a big bureaucratic institution that has been racked by scandals. Uh, nobody trusts its leadership. And you have all of these archbishops in places like New York and Boston, Philadelphia and Detroit, who are sort of trying to figure out how to manage decline. And I think that's, this is a case where your point about localism is totally well taken. It's really hard to, fig- to, to sort of fix that from above. Mm-hmm. And what, you know, what you really need instead are sort of cadres of, um, you know, it doesn't have to be priests. It can be sisters. It can be, you know, a religious order that says we're going to revitalize these decaying Catholic schools all over the country. Um, it's but, but sort of s- small committed groups that can go into, you know, states where the church doesn't have enough priests to fill all its par- – to run all its parishes – 
and can say, all right, we're going to give you five priests in this diocese, and they're going to live together in an oratory and staff six failing parishes and try to revive them. Um, I think that's that's when I think about paths to sort of internal Catholic renewal. That it, it, yeah, it is the papal ninjas. They're not, you know, assassinating Protestants. One hopes. No, I'm not in favor. Of, like, I'm not, right, I'm not, but 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 yeah, I mean, you that's that's sort of. I think that's the because Catholicism. You know, evangelicalism has sustained itself more. It is less decadent than Catholicism because it has this tradition of pastor entrepreneurs, yeah. which is a problematic thing in certain ways because they can, you know, become sort of, you know, charismatic, power hungry, and corrupt. And there are plenty of plenty of bad case studies of of sort of powerful pastors in American Protestantism. But it also is it creates this dynamism where you can be a young pastor. You know, just starting out, and you can say, "I can make my career by seeding, you know, seeding churches in this place or that place, and and you know, build something big out of it without having a lot of denominational overhead." Um, and that's hard to do in the diocesan structure of Roman Catholicism. If you're a diocesan priest, you know, you're not going to be sort of founding a mega church. But this is what missionary orders have done very effectively in much of Catholic history. And I think if you're imagining a, a Catholic recovery in the U.S., um, I think that's a plausible. I think yeah. So I'm I'm pro. I'm definitely pro ninja. And and if in you know the last my last book was about Catholicism, so I tried not to you know, tell I'm Catholic in this book, but I tried not to give like the blueprint for Catholics specifically. But that institutionalism I think is generally important. I think the failure of American religion in the last fifty years has been that you have all of this, you still have tons of religious energy in the U.S., but nobody has figured out how to put it in, into institutions. So if you go back to the 19th century, you know, you had all kinds of what I as a Catholic would call heretics, right? Mm -hmm. Heretics running around, heretics here, heretics there. But they started churches. They created, you know, Utah, which is the, the place that is basically the least, you know, in certain ways, the least decadent part of the U.S., the place that right. fits the Jonah Goldberg model. For right. Sort of, you know, not perfectly tolerant. It's not mm -hmm. always ideal to be a non-Mormon in Mormondom, but tolerant enough and really successful as sort of a regional subculture. And you used to have a lot more of that. You had Christian science, you know, mm -hmm. starting up and becoming for a while a dominant force in Boston. You had, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Seventh-day Adventists and all these groups came out of 19th century heresies and late 20th century heresies for some reason have just become sort of all about just therapeutic individualism, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I really enjoyed the Marianne Williamson experience in right. the Democratic primary. Um, and I interviewed her for the Times' podcast and I sort of, you know, defended her sometimes against criticism of some of her more outre ideas. Um, but in a different era, Marianne Williamson, as a religious entrepreneur, would have started an institution. And if she had been, as all people should be, a Roman Catholic, she could have done it within Catholicism and founded a missionary order or something. But even outside Catholicism, a world where, you know, Oprah really ran churches instead right. of just having sort of, you know, revival meetings for suburban women where you read Eat, Pray, Love and listen to motivational speakers. If she founded institutions, America would probably generally be in better shape as as a culture. Um, so um, just so I can clarify for new listeners um, or for listeners that 
your celebrity brought to this podcast. Um, when I the papal ninja thing, I am not calling for in real life a bunch of pajama wearing ultramontane Catholics to like descend from wires and slit the throats of promis- prom- prominent Protestants or anything like that. But it is not obvious to me why the UN has the moral authority to send in peacekeepers to places, but the Catholic Church does not. Um, I trust, to be just brutally honest, I trust the Catholic Church's motivations at least as much as I trust the UN's motivations, particularly... Uh, sending low bars here. Yes, that's right. And the Catholic Church would make mistakes too. But like the idea that the Swiss guards couldn't like protect... Right, couldn't uh, do humanitarian missions, especially in regions of Africa where you have yeah. persecuted Christians, many of whom are Catholic. No, and I that's sort of separate from or at least somewhat distinct from the role that a missionary order could play in the U.S. Um, but we've talked about this right. before, and I, I agree with you. I don't see, you know, the Knights of Malta, um, who have been a source of controversy under Francis for other reasons, exist as like a fraternal charitable organization. And it's not clear to me that you, I mean, you know, it, there are some reasons why it might not work, but you could imagine a world where there were, you know, 2,000 Knights of Malta who were actually trained Catholic. To do stuff. Yeah, trained Catholic peacekeepers who could be inserted into conflict zones. Yeah. Yes. So th- th- this is sort of, I mean... I, but this is where you and Sora Bamari are totally on, on the same Yeah, page, absolutely. Right? I mean, um, so, so I'm glad we've achieved that I mean, kind of... I don't I'm want... Always I don't want... Bridges. I don't want Francis to, like, take back Trieste or anything. <laughs> um, but. Well, but now, now, I mean, this is, you know, in the age of the coronavirus, you know, with Italy under lockdown, perhaps... The time has come to revive the papal states. Yeah, Leighton's realm. <laughs> that um, good pronunciation of the German. Yeah, I got yeah. the German. So, um, no, but like, like this is—it's a sort of a Robert Nisbet point, you know, where, um, and something you've all says all the time is that you know, people don't just create institutions because institutions are good. Institutions do things, yes. right? They're there for a purpose. And um, there's this great scene. Do you ever read Nisbet's Prejudices? Yes. Yeah. No, I quote I, in in the Decadent Society, I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's an essay from Prejudices about golden ages. Okay, yeah. Right. So, okay. And it's a great riff. So. Um, in, the, in the essay on tradition, um, he tells this little, I think it's the tradition one, he tells this little story about how... Um, when the British army was preparing for World War II, they had to demothball all these artillery pieces from World War One, And um, the manual, like they, they knew what the guys holding, uh, holding the artillery thing were supposed to do, but there was this one step in the procedure that no one understood where these two guys peel off and hold their hands up and uh, like one hand up as if they're holding something and they had to bring in some vet from World War One who watched them do this. And he says, and then all of a sudden he realizes, oh, they're supposed to be holding the horses, right? <laughs> but the horses were no longer used to bring out artillery. They had jeeps for that then. And, you know, there's this great line from Tina Fey on the Conan O'Brien podcast where she explains that the customs, the, the traditions of the writer's room at Saturday Night Live were all developed um, 
with the idea that the writers would take enormous amounts of cocaine in the 1970s. And now writers don't use cocaine, but they still have the same schedule and the same organization, yep. right? There's this, when the kind of decadence that you're talking about is this drift that you get where people are still obeying the forms of the traditions, but the utility of those traditions is no longer aligned with the problems that we've got. And so if the Knights of Malta or whoever are just merely a discussion society, whatever, that's not why they came into existence. And the church is, I mean, this is one of the reasons I love, one of the things I love about uh, the Mormons, I guess you're not supposed to call them Mormons anymore, but we can do that. Um, I had a, my, one of my best friends, my best friend in college was a Latter-day Saint. No, he was okay. actually a charismatic Catholic. Okay. I mean, a hardcore, yeah. like serious Catholic, um, had been to an exorcism, and um, uh, and he would it would drive him furious because the Mormons were the only religious denomination that would run commercials on TV that just said, "Be a good person," you know. Um, and he's like, "Why isn't the Catholic Church doing this kind of stuff?" You know, and um, it just seems to me that. Right, no, I, I have no problem with ritual, but you know, it yeah, needs to be connected is, you know, no, to something. This is, this is, you know, I obviously have deep doctrinal differences with um, the uh, the Latter Day Saints, but you know, I went out to Utah and got a sort of tour when Mitt Romney was running for president, and they were trying to acquaint journalists more with Mormondom. Um, and you know, just as a Christian, as a member of sort of you know powerful, but sometimes decaying seeming church it's just sort of a rebuke to see it's a you know it's it's shaming to see what the mormons are able to do in terms of the most basic you know clothing and feeding the hungry and trying to evangelize the world kind of thing and i think there are limits to what they can achieve that again i think have something to do with their theology but what they have achieved is really impressive and then you know the catholic equivalent is it's much it's much more bureaucratized um it's much more entangled with you know public programs and government programs where catholic charities can just feel like you know another government bureaucracy and yeah there is something of there there's some marriage of structure and purpose that the mormons have that you know, and you, you can extend it outside religion, like the U.S. Congress, right? Right. Like the, the Senate as the world's greatest deliberative body, this kind of pious stuff about the traditions of the Senate. You know, it's very clear that none of that is true anymore. Right. And the Senate exists, as Yuval has argued, as sort of a platform for people's ambitions. Right. People propose legislation in order to go on TV and talk about legislation, not because it's ever actually going to pass. Right. And so this... I think this extends, yeah, across Western institutions. And Trump has succeeded in part because he recognized that. He recognized that everything was kind of a sham at this point. And people were ready for somebody who just said, well, it's all a sham. Why shouldn't I run the State of the Union (laughs) like a reality television show? Or a Roman tribute. I mean, that's how it felt to me. You know, I was waiting for them to bring out the severed head of the King of the Gauls or something. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You did did expect them to wheel in the body of, you know, Al-Qaeda's number three or whatever (laughs) whatever terrorist we've killed (laughs) this week. Or bring them in alive and make them fight a giraffe or something, you know? uh, second term, man. Second term. Second term is gonna be awesome. Um, all right, little rank punditry. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. Uh, we're recording this 
by the time this airs, um, which I had to explain to Jack Butler once that the air was a reference back to radio days. Oh, uh, yeah. When we record our podcast, the producers get annoyed if we say on the air or, you know, sort of use yeah. radio terms because it, it's, I guess... Although there's literally a sign above you right now. It says red, on air. It says yeah. on air. Yeah, and there's over there it says turn off on air light on when air done. Light. You know, I, I got no problem it's radio, with radio. Podcasts are radio. This is radio. Yeah. I mean, we still say dial a phone number, and yet, you know, we haven't had dials on. Like, these kids are sitting here. I've never no seen idea. a dial. No idea what a dial know. is. Um, and uh, children. Um, you know, record album. We can go on all day. Like damn but kids. record album, you go into Barnes & Noble and they're back. That's like true. They had a, a Vogue. Now, to the you, is that a sign of decadence? Um, Because we haven't done the pop culture thing. Forget the punditry. Yeah, I mean, I think it more depends on what's on them. I think you can you can get out of decadence sometimes by rediscovering and remaking past forms. I don't think it just has to be you invent some completely new style. But... Yeah, probably. It's it's probably mostly decadence. I, I mean, I think there's a basic. I, I think, and this is this is totally unprovable, uh-huh. unlike the statistical rigor of the economic chapters of the book. But I think we're all sort of prisoners of baby boomer culture, uh-huh. and the weight of the baby boom generation, their cultural influence, and the fact that they succeeded so completely in overthrowing past structures so they sort of had the field alone it wasn't like it was the baby boomers plus like 17 generations behind them it's just the baby boomers um means that yeah we're sort of stuck with there's a certain kind of envy that we have unspoken of what it was like to be alive in 1969 like tarantino's once upon a time in hollywood ford like the movies this this was a pretty good year for movies this was a less decadent year a lot of my examples in the book are of sort of motion picture decadence and endless sequels and reboots. This year's movies were a little better, but they were better in part because Ford versus Ferrari, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, they were sort of looking back and saying, remember when America was young and cool, yeah. <laughs> right? Remember when America was Brad Pitt, like, tooling around? Um, and what if he'd been able to fight off the Manson family and everything would have been different, right? So, so yeah, the records are probably part of that, a sense that, like... You know that that there was something there, nineteen sixty to nineteen seventy five, that was destructive in various ways, but was also dynamic and cool. And for us sitting here, you know, it's all TV shows generated by algorithms and J.J. Abrams sort of endlessly making homages to Spielberg and Lucas yeah. that are not not as good as the original. So I mean, the, how many how many Star Wars movies with the Death Star have there been now? It's 3 or 4, right? I mean, it's it feels I mean, right, cuz there is it appears it depends if you count Star Killer Base as a Death Star. Yeah, right? I do. Yeah, no, I mean the new Star Wars, <laughs> you know, I, my Star Wars uh, the the Star Wars rant, right? Is yeah. basically the original movies are not decadent. Because even though they're, they are pastiches, obviously, all culture is sort of pastiches. You're taking things from the past. But they mix a lot of things together. You know, Flash Gordon here and um, Kurosawa and so on. Little Joseph Campbell. Little Joseph Campbell, little Lini Riefenstahl. And you get something that is, you know, there hadn't been a, a cool space blockbuster. Yeah. Um, and then Empire Strikes Back goes a little deeper, is actually like almost an adult movie. Return of the Jedi retreats a little and is a little more trivial with the Ewoks, but still has a lot going on with Luke and Vader. So they're great. Then Lucas 
to his credit, tries to do something even more ambitious in the prequels. And this is when the but this is the problem of the baby boomers is because they've sort of defeated the past so completely, they don't have the resources to go and tell a sort of Plutarch's live story of, you know, a republic falling and a human being being corrupted. You need a little more classical stuff. Yeah. And so he ends up making something stiff, superficial, and terrible. Mm-hmm. But you can see the ambitions. Yeah. And so then when that fails, that's when you get decadence, true decadence, which is the new movies, which are just the old movies made again with better special effects, less originality in writing, and the same bloody plot, like beat yeah. for beat. And so you end up with, you know, Palpatine, you know, facing off against against Skywalkers at the end. And yeah, so Rise of Skywalker is the ultimate in in cultural um, decadence. That's the end of the rant, but I figured no, the audience needs in. it. Um, um, but, I mean... I take your point about the pop culture thing. I mean, the 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 only problem I have, and I keep wanting to make Dune analogies, but mm-hmm. you know, um, do it. Uh, the only problem I have is that I, it seems to me that the the pop culture space it's the dominant stuff that you're talking about. I agree. The decadent repetition, just rebooting, rebooting, rebooting. Um, is a problem, f- but it's it's a problem. F- it's not quite. It, it's all being done basically because that's the only way to hedge the risk about people not showing up to a movie theater and to make it sell in a global market. Right. And meanwhile, there's an enormous amount of innovation and cool stuff happening at the streaming level. Um, and that brings its own problems, which is like the loss of, of a common culture kind of thing, except for the dumb reboot stuff. But, um, I just, popular culture is just such a diverse topic that you, whatever, whatever storyline you want, whatever interpretation you want to defend, you can always find at least three examples. And as we know in journalism, three, three examples is a trend. Um, but you can also find three examples that are contrary, right? Um, that's totally fair. And, and I think there is, I think there is obviously still real creativity. Um, I th- and yeah, and the diversity of stuff means that, you know, I as a newspaper columnist, a rank pundit who has sort of you know moonlights as a movie critic, I don't have the time to consume enough pop culture maybe to fully ground all of my judgment. So I no, I, I'm, I, I'm not criticizing. No, no, you. but I no, just, no, but I, I, I'm, I'm. Conceding the point, I think you identify something very real, and yeah. and you and and people actually should buy the book because it is it's, it's a pretty compelling read and it makes really, you think about they it. Really should, yeah. I mean, it's, right now, I mean, as I mean, they're listening, I mean, re- reading the book would be good, but buying it would be spectacular. It has a pretty cool cover. Um, it does, you know, this sort of 18th century print. It'll look good on your coffee table. Yes, well, even the, if you haven't read it, unlo- next to your rich Corinthian leather. Um. By the way, did you know that there is no such thing as Corinthian leather? Um, Jonah, I, I, you've changed my entire <laughs> of the universe. So um, I went to uh, Cordoba, right, where the Chrysler Cordoba, right, and, the rich mm-hmm. and we were uh, talking about all of it, and, and people are looking at me like I'm crazy because I was doing my Ricardo Montalban stuff. And I went and looked it up, and it was just made up for the ads so that 
Ricardo because Ricardo Montalban, and we'll get we can get the audio for this. This is fair use. Um, <laughs> uh, rich Corinthian leather just sounds cool when it comes out of Ricardo Montalban's. Yes. Yeah. To drive it is to experience the pleasure of a truly roadworthy automobile in the Chrysler tradition of luxury. Yes, even rich Corinthian leather. But there's, there's no no Corinthian. Yeah, I mean it's like. Uh, I mean, I guess Cor. Sorry, <clears throat> I guess Corinth. You wouldn't think of like right. Corinth as like a center of leather making. No, per se. Um, so why there would be Corinthian leather is unclear. Meanwhile, I've been searched for the great Naga herd, where they get all the Naga nah. hide from. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, okay, a little punditry, good we'll get you out of here. So, I've talked to several prominent elected officials. We'll just keep it, uh, that's as close as we'll get to identifying them, who have made the case to me that it's okay for Trump to get reelected because we now know what the Trump presidency looks like, Mm -hmm. and it'll just be four more years of the same. Do you agree with that? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, again, I mean, let's stipulate that we're recording this, you know, Four days a week before it airs. Uh-huh. Um, so, provisional judgments on the coronavirus response are provisional. Uh-huh. Um, but I would say that you know, over the last month, as a genuine global threat level pandemic has arisen uh, in China and spread throughout the world, we have seen the reasons why a certain swath of never Trump did not want to make Donald Trump president of the United States. And it wasn't just that they were worried that he wouldn't appoint conservative judges. And it wasn't just that, um, you know, he has a coarse public manner or was a birther once upon a time. It's that there are aspects of the job of the presidency that transcend partisanship and ideology that are just about sort of, you know, protecting Americans from dying. Mm-hmm. Um, that he's not good at, that he's really terrible at. Um, so it's it seems to me that the case for four more years of Trump rests on the hope that one, you know, the coronavirus, that sort of, you know, grassroots localism of the kind we're mm-hmm. talking about, you know, local government and private enterprise and so on, saves America from a huge economic and social disaster. Uh, If such a disaster ensues, Trump won't be reelected, period. So let's say it saves us. And then you're basically rolling the dice and saying, let's hope this this was the biggest challenge we got under Trump in the first four years. Let's hope we don't get anything bigger in the next four years. Because I think we're seeing that he's, you know, four years in or three and a half years in, he's no readier for this kind of challenge than he was on day one. And probably is less ready because, you know, even if you think that every everyone who Trump hired at the beginning was, you know, too corrupted by the deep state or something to serve him, he doesn't have people around him. We have acting secretaries of everything. The upper levels of the bureaucracy are not staffed. There is not some team around Trump that's ready for a crisis, I think it's fair to say, or that has like lots of public credibility the way Jim Mattis, like him or dislike him, had a certain kind of public credibility. If you needed to impose, you know, a militarized quarantine on the U.S. tomorrow, who would be the 
spokesman for that. Right. Nobody even knows who. I mean, you and I know, but no one knows who the Department of, you know, the Secretary of Homeland Security, the Department of Defense. People don't know who even holds these jobs. So I think you can see in the coronavirus crisis reasons to say that, you know, my my view is that conservatives and Republicans took a gamble on Trump and getting through several years with good Supreme Court appointments and some other things that you like is in a way you're playing with house money. Yeah. And, you know, reelecting him doesn't necessarily lead to disaster. Maybe it leads to Amy Coney Barrett on the Coney Barrett on the court and a lot of things or that I Pam Bondi. that I would like to see. Don't and <laughs> um and maybe it all works out and I certainly have moments where in my internal monologue I think, well, four more years of Trump would, you know, would really own the libs, you yeah. know. But it's it's again you're you're taking the chips that you've won and you're saying, let's put them all on black again. And when when you lose that gamble, worse things than just Joe Biden being president can can happen. So that's I'm, you know, I sort of oscillate, you know, my my never Trumpism waxes and wanes. I think more than more than yours, I'm more anti anti Trump sometimes than you are. But in the thick of in my coronavirus anxiety, I I know why I was never Trump, and yeah. there were good reasons for it. Uh, I'm I'm sometimes anti anti Trump in the sense that I think a lot of people. I mean, Trump is a real gift for making people make fools of themselves, you know, and. Um, so I, you know, my anti-anti-Trumpism waxes and wanes somewhat. My pro-Trumpism remains pretty flat line. <laughs> pretty, pretty, pretty buried. Yeah. Under the permafrost. Um, pretty much. Um, um, yeah, no, but my only point is, is that if you look at how he was emboldened by the end of the Mueller probe, so that within 24 hours of that, he gets on this phone call to the president of Ukraine, right? You know, like, learned nothing positive um, from learned that experience. Something. Yeah. Something. And then the second he's done with the the impeachment thing, he starts purging, you know, everybody and all the rest. Um, and every responsible person that has been fired or forced out has been replaced with somebody less responsible and less serious. And if he's actually validated by getting reelected straight up, um, the trend line of his presidency doesn't stay. It is not a static projection, straight line into the future. He becomes more emboldened, more Trumpy. Yes. Um, although Jared did say that he thinks the second term would be very uh, businesslike with very little drama. So there's that. There's that. I mean, I I tend. In my other in my other podcast, when I'm not dropping in with you, I argue with my colleague Michelle Goldberg about this. Stuff no relation, a lot. No relation, and you know she has your view only more so, right? That sort of the emboldened Trump becomes more nakedly corrupt and more corrosive of American norms of constitutional government and so on. And I have tended to think, and I still sort of think that Trump's incompetence sort of puts a limit on that corrosion. I think that's Like all Trump is really interested in is consolidating power so that his friends don't get sent to jail. And even that he hasn't figured out how to do, right? Like Paul Manafort and I mean, not that they're his friends, but maybe he'll pardon Roger Stone. I mean, I would expect some presidential pardons in the second term. But 
I, I yeah, I'm more afraid of coronavirus Trump than I am of, you know, pardoning my corrupt associates Trump. And maybe that, you know, reflects my maybe I'm too sanguine about mm-hmm. that. But if it were just Trump, you know, issuing too many pardons and, you know, trying to trying to twist arms at the Justice Department, I would be less worried than I am watching him literally like try and yell at the stock market to make it go up in the midst of a global economic crisis. It's sort of like Homer Simpson watching Garrison Keillor shouting, stupid TV, be more funny. (laughs) Um, uh, My favorite moment was Trump at the CDC saying, these tests are perfect. They're perfect like... Like the phone call. Like the phone call. Um, which he first said, no. first he said, they're perfect like the letter. Because he's got this brain glitch where he says the phone call was a letter. And then and then he had to explain, I meant the transcription of the phone call, which was perfect. And then he took back the perfection of the tests by saying, the tests weren't quite as perfect as the phone call, <laughs> which got him impeached. <laughs> um, so but there's some, you know, some honesty doomed. there. The tests were not have not been perfect, yeah. so it's not he's not wrong. All right, Ross. Thank you so much for coming on, and uh, everybody should definitely uh, pick up a copy of the Decadent Society. Frankly, they should get two. Oh yeah, yeah. I Give mean one one for your cousin. Yeah. I mean, on, and if we're all going to be under quarantine. I mean, it's bad for book tours, but, you know, you're going to need some reading material. Yeah. And reading about decadence is really the best way to pass. Or listening to you talk about yes. decadence. Yes. No, I, um, the, the audiobook is a rich and mellifluous experience that I recommend to all of your listeners. The euphony of your reading is uh, beyond compare. It's très bon. Merci. <laughs> <laughs> so lame. Oh, I said that wrong. Yep. yep. Okay. <laughs> Greetings, dear listeners. Uh, this is Jonah Goldberg, damn it. And uh, I'm doing this take again. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.